Chapter Eleven, Part Two, of the Man with the Black Cord by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mueller visits Rose Cottage, Part Two. Next morning, Mueller spent several hours with Bauer going over the works. The afternoon found him again in Rose Cottage. Some time was spent in the conservatories in admiration of the doctor's remarkable results in the culture of chrysanthemums. Then host and guest went into the house, Sonia running beside them. "'Now you really must see my rings,' said the Russian brightly. "'Sonia, dear, you'll look after the tea, won't you?' The little girl ran out, and the two men, arm in arm, crossed the study and stood before the handsome cabinet which had already attracted Mueller's attention. Maximoff's manner was almost ceremonious as he turned the key in the lock. "'What I have here is not only costly in material and workmanship,' he said, "'but it has its chief value in the association connected with each piece. Every one of my rings represents, as it were, a bit of world history, for each one of them was the property of a person of importance in the history of the world.' While speaking, he drew out a drawer of the cabinet. It contained four ebony boxes with glass tops. They were lined with dark blue velvet, and the rings lay resting on little knobs. There were about forty of them, a collection that was indeed of great value. Maximoff pulled up a chair for his guest with the words, You must sit down and examine these at your ease, to thoroughly appreciate them. Mueller settled back comfortably in the chair and examined each piece with great interest, while his host gave the necessary explanation. There was, for instance, a simply worked golden circlet set with a roughly cut diamond of considerable size which had been worn by Peter the Great. A heavy ring set with many pearls of value had once adorned the hand of Anne Boleyn. A peculiarly carved ring of darkened silver had been the property of Count Wallenstein. Maximoff could tell the story of each piece in his collection, and could tell it so well that his listener's enjoyment of the curiosity was enhanced doubly. When the last of the rings had been studied and admired, Maximoff laid the boxes carefully back in the drawer. "'I suppose, of course, you have documents to prove the truth of the history of this really remarkable collection?' asked Mueller. "'Oh, yes, indeed,' said the doctor eagerly. "'I'll show them to you at once.' He fairly tore open the next drawer and took out a large portfolio which lay in it. At the same moment, Mueller, looking at the open drawer, remarked, "'Oh, I see you have all sorts of other beautiful things there.' miniatures too that's another expensive fad are you interested in that sort of thing very much then i'll show you what i have it isn't very much i've been collecting miniatures only about a year or so he took the case out of the drawer and held it so that his guests could look at the little pictures there were only seven of them but each one a masterpiece in its way one of them seemed to interest muller greatly he stared at it as if hypnotized while Maximoff drew out and sorted the papers in the portfolio. A stereotyped smile curved Mueller's lips, but the smile did not go deeper than the surface. His heart seemed to stand still, and the thoughts whirled through his brain in such a mad rush that he did not hear Maximoff's next remark. Finally, the detective realized that his host was speaking to him. "'Why, you're quite lost in the study of my art treasures,' said Maximoff, with a little laugh. It was a bright and cheery little laugh, but a shiver, icy cold, ran down Mueller's spine as he felt the other man's hand on his shoulder. "'Which is it that so absorbs you?' continued the Russian. Mueller rose slowly from his chair and pushed it back. He leaned lightly against the window frame 
and his face was pale. But the eyes which met Maximoff's firmly were perfectly calm, and the tone of his voice was quiet and indifferent as he finally spoke. The Napoleon interests me the most, I think. I've never seen him painted just this way before. Yes, isn't it odd? remarked Maximoff eagerly. It isn't the great emperor we see here, the mighty general. It's just a private individual who feels as cold as we would when the thermometer drops down to zero. The picture interested me because of what I call its ironical conception of the subject, and I procured it recently with considerable difficulty. While the Russian was speaking, he held the little picture before him and looked at it, his eyes full of merriment. Another phase of his surprise, scarcely less than the first, filled the detective's mind. In spirit, he reviewed his visit to Miss Geringer, and held again in his hand the picture of the Empress Josephine, undoubtedly the companion to this miniature of Napoleon. Then he heard Mrs. Tunner say again, Mr. Erlock and I cleaned the picture of the Emperor two days before his disappearance. And again, Dr. Maximoff was the last person to visit Mr. Erlock. He was in our house on the 3rd of September. And again, Mueller seemed to hear Till's report. An insurance agent came to the place on the 6th of September, but he did not enter the house. Like succeeding flashes of lightning, these sentences shot through the detective's head, bound together, as it were, by the bits of black cord and the enormous footprints that he had seen in the Erlock garden, footprints which he had seen later in front of the wall surrounding the Plone Pavilion, a proof that the man with the black cord had followed him there and knew who he was. And now he was here in the house of the most highly respected man in the neighborhood, stood opposite this cultivated and great-hearted man, and saw him smiling at the little picture of Napoleon, the picture which, as he said, he had recently procured with considerable difficulty, the picture which was in Erlock's possession up to two days before his disappearance, after which time no visitor had entered his house. Had Maximoff been there once more, without the knowledge of Mrs. Tunner or the Tills, and had he persuaded the old gentleman to sell him the picture? But Mueller remembered that Maximoff himself had once mentioned that his last meeting with Erlock took place in the very first days of September, the afternoon that he had played chess in the greenhouse. This agreed with what Mrs. Tunner had said, but might it not have been a lie, after all? All these thoughts circled madly through Mueller's head while he stood looking at the smiling Russian. What was the difficulty of which the other spoke? There are various ways of procuring a treasured masterpiece, he asked himself, his teeth set firmly, and a pitiless gleam rose in his eyes, while his hand involuntarily found its way to the pocket of his coat, in the depths of which was his little revolver. When a man finds himself unexpectedly in the lion's den, the feel of a weapon in his hand is very comforting. But was he in any danger here, here as the guest of this delightfully amiable and quite harmlessly cordial Maximoff? It did not seem possible to the veteran detective. Still, every single move in this series of crimes had been carried out with a most unusual and unheard-of audacity, carried out in a way that could only have been done by a most unusual type of criminal. Mueller found himself suddenly with a new clue, a new trail opening before him. A false one, perhaps? But however that might be, it was his duty to follow it up, unless he could prove that there was an identical miniature of Napoleon still in the cabinet in Erlock's study. If the picture was not in its place there, then he would have to follow up this new clue. In the course of his long and rich experience, he had learned that however utterly improbable a thing may seem, 
it may yet be a fact. The detective breathed deeply and a peculiar gleam came into his eyes. A strange smile moved his lips. The stately, handsome host did not seem to notice it. His great dark eyes still rested merrily on the little picture of the shivering emperor, as he delicately breathed into the air rings of smoke from his tiny cigarette. "'Do you see this, Mr. Hartman?' he said cheerily. "'The painter has even taken the liberty of putting a tiny touch of red on the imperial nose.' He handed the picture to his guest. "'Yes, really, so it is,' answered the other, laughing, and added, "'You said just now that you had considerable difficulty in obtaining possession of this picture. What was the trouble?' Mueller smiled in harmless friendliness as he asked the question. Not a line of his face, not a quiver in his voice, betrayed the tenseness that held him for the last few moments. Maximoff was equally calm. In his usual witty manner, he began to tell the story of how he had found the miniature in the shop of an antiquary in Vienna, of how he had gone there again and again to try and buy just this one piece out of a Napoleon collection which the man wanted to sell altogether. It had cost Maximoff, so he said, many journeys and considerable money until he finally managed to get possession of this most interesting piece of the entire collection the russian did not spare a joke at the expense of his own obstinacy and his awakening collector's mania his story was easily and naturally told but when it came to an end muller noticed that maximoff had not mentioned the name or the address of the antiquary in question at this moment a young serving-maid entered with a card on a silver tray. The girl was evidently untrained as yet, for she left the door open behind her, and Mueller could see a man in the hall outside. A single glance at this visitor, and the detective turned to the window, almost burying himself in the heavy curtains that hung there. The gleam in his eye was perceptibly heightened. He kept his gaze on Maximoff, who, as he read the name on the card, lost his laughing indifference. His face flushed in anger, a deep fold ploughed itself between his brows, and his eyes shot fire. He was evidently in the grip of one of the sudden rages of which he himself had spoken. "'You idiot! Don't you know enough to shut the door?' he cried to the girl, and then walked quickly to the now-entering visitor. "'You know your business. Nobody's safe from you, I suppose?' The stranger, an elegantly dressed gentleman, seemed to be somewhat offended at this reception, for his voice was sharp as he answered, Dr. Maximoff, I should indeed know very little about my business, if it were not possible for me to follow up anyone who has once honoured me with his confidence and his patronage. Why, I am— He did not get any further, for on entering the room he had seen the figure of a man in the shadow of the heavy plush curtains at the window. He bowed lightly to this scarcely seen person, and Maximoff also turned to the window. My dear Mr. Hartman, said the doctor, pray excuse me, I'm obliged to talk to this gentleman a few moments, but I will soon return to you. You'd better lock up your treasures first, replied Hartman, from behind the handkerchief which he held to his face, as he was struggling with a fit of coughing. Maximoff motioned the stranger to enter the neighboring room and shut the door behind him. These people are so aggressive, he said indignantly to Mueller. I went to see this man the other day to talk about some changes I want made in my house, a new addition I am desirous of building and now he comes here without being sent for. Well, I'll be off then, said Mueller, for as long as the man is here you might as well have your talk with him without being hurried. Are you really going? Yes, I must, but if you will permit it, I will come soon again. Permit it? Why, I shall be delighted to see you here, delighted. I confess that I'm growing very fond of you. Is that really true? 
"'Haven't you noticed that I seem to enjoy your company? "'At least you have not avoided me, but seemed rather to seek me out. "'Then I may be equally frank, and tell you that I find myself taking a great liking to you. "'Why do you speak so low? "'It isn't necessary that your architect should know everything, is it? "'But now you must go to him. "'Good afternoon, doctor. "'We will meet soon again, I hope.' A few moments later Mueller was outside, walking along the dreary high road. He looked at his watch, then changed his direction suddenly, and walked rapidly towards the little railway station. He was just in time to spring into a train for Vienna. He found himself alone in the compartment. "'What was that man doing there?' he asked half aloud. Then he burst out into a hearty laugh. "'Did he send for him to spy on the dwellers in the pavilion?' But his sudden merriment did not last long. It gave way to the graver thoughts that absorbed him completely, that dazed him with their swing and rush. It is absolutely mysterious, incomprehensible. If it is he, why am I still alive? And if it is not he, why these two lies today? For I know that this Napoleon miniature is the one that belonged to Erlock. The manner of painting, even the odd frame, might be repeated on two pictures, but the peculiar pattern of the paper that is pasted over the back of this little masterpiece and of the picture of Josephine could hardly be repeated in a copy. Well, I'll know before nightfall whether there is a picture of Napoleon in Erlock's cabinet, but I very much fear that Maximoff's story of how he got the picture was as much a lie as his assertion that his visitor was an architect. I am greatly afraid of it, thought the veteran detective, for I really and truly had begun to like the man. In the city, Mueller went to his own home first. An hour and a half later, he entered the office of a well-known private detective agency. He was ushered into a cozily furnished little room, hardly larger than a good-sized closet. All the reception rooms of the establishment were on this order, for the customers who came here desired secrecy beyond everything else. Mueller was well known to the attendants and was shown into the little room which adjoined the manager's private office. "'The manager may be here any moment,' said the attendant who showed him in. "'Is there anything I can do for you until he comes?' "'No, thank you,' said Mueller. "'I don't mind being alone, as I have a great deal to think over.' "'There, I think he's in there now,' said the attendant, listening towards the door of the private office. Mueller rose and knocked at this door. As he passed a long mirror to reach it, he smiled at the reflection he saw there, the reflection of his own slender figure, for he had left all that made up Mr. Hartman in his own home. "'Ah, good afternoon, my dear Mr. Mueller,' cried Manager Grang, as Mueller entered the room. Grang was engaged in hanging up his overcoat on a hat-rack. He stopped just where he was, flung the coat over his arm, and came forward with his free hand outstretched. Deuce ex machina, he exclaimed, evidently greatly pleased to see the old detective. And why? asked Mueller with a cheery laugh, as the other led him to a soft corner of the sofa and piled up the cushions invitingly. My, my, you're treating me as if I were Her Royal Highness, who was here on the 24th, he continued leaning back in the corner. Grang walked over to the hat-tree, hung up his coat, and now came back hastily. "'What do you know about the princess?' he asked in astonishment, not altogether pleased. Mueller pointed to the cigar-box that stood on the table, and remarked with a smile, "'Why don't you say as usual, help yourself, old man?' "'Sure, help yourself, old man.' Grang pushed the box over to Mueller. "'But then you'll answer my question, won't you?' Grang took a seat, too, and his momentary displeasure was soon gone. In fact, he was glad that this Mueller seemed to know everything. For the last two hours, Mueller had been the principal figure in a scheme of his. 
the veteran detective took so much time to light his cigar that Greng decided it were better not to say anything about the princess and to talk to Mueller about his own scheme. This was the gist of his first remark. "'As you like,' replied the other. "'Well, then, what sort of a scheme is it that you have woven around my worthy personality?' Greng rose, went to a cupboard, and brought out a bottle of brandy and two glasses. "'We'll drink a glass first, to your very good health,' he said. "'My health is excellent just at present, thank you,' answered Mueller. "'I'm very glad to hear it.' "'Why, particularly? First, for your sake, and then for my own.' "'Nothing the matter with this brandy,' said the guest, as he sipped it slowly. "'But what does it matter to you how I am feeling?' "'It awakens a hope.' "'What hope?' Grang looked at his guest carefully. "'You certainly look fine.' "'Do you think so?' "'Yes, I do. I notice the difference, possibly, because it's two years since I saw you last.' "'Yes, that was in Pegley, wasn't it? It was certainly awfully good of you to come over from Genoa just to see me.' "'It was quite natural.' I was living in hopes then, too. Concerning me, you didn't say anything about it. No, I didn't dare mention the subject. Mercy! I had no idea you were so shy. Well, you see, when one man wants to suggest a partnership to another, and the other begins the conversation by saying that he never intends to work again, it doesn't look very hopeful. I was having so much trouble with my liver just then. Is it all right now? You certainly look it. And you certainly look very enterprising today. I not only look enterprising, but just at present I feel very much so. And you feel like working again? Grang bent forward eagerly. Yes, I feel quite like working again. That's the reason I'm here today. Oh, that's fine. Then I may ask you something? Certainly. What is it? Would you be ready for a journey? Out of the country? To Russia. Mueller drank his second glass of brandy slowly and carefully weighing each drop of the amber liquid on his tongue as if he hadn't another thought in the world. The younger man waited until his impatience got the better of him. Well, my dear Mueller, do answer. To Russia, you say, remarked the old detective indifferently. And what am I to do there? Greng shrugged his shoulders and answered with a slight embarrassment. I don't know. You don't know? No, my client is very distrustful. But he must have confided in you to some extent— he has told me only that he wants an independent, preferably unmarried, highly intelligent, and discreet detective to go on a journey to Russia with him. Is that all, and you're to find this treasure for him? Yes, that's it. He came here about it, and you haven't let him get out of your sight since then, have you? Mueller, what do you know about it? I know that you were in Dr. Maximoff's house this afternoon. Well, that beats all. You know your business. No one is safe from you, I suppose. These were the words with which he welcomed you. The devil! Now how the mischief did you know that? Are you omnipresent? No, I'm only in one place at one time. But the place I happened to be at at that time was in the window of the study at Rose Cottage. Oh, then you were the man who stood there? You have hit it exactly. Incredible! And yet, I don't know, it's not so surprising— I had to tell the Russian that I hadn't the sort of man he wanted at liberty just now, and that he might have to wait some little time before I could send him the right person. So I suppose he may have heard of you and sent for you himself. That explains his anger at my coming. If he needed me, he wouldn't have considered it an intrusion. Still, I don't know, then, why he should have lied to me. Why didn't he tell me that he had the man he wanted instead of insisting that I was to find someone right away? That's what I don't understand. But I understand it then do tell me. 
Dr. Maximoff does not know that I am a detective, and he must not know it for some time yet, said Mueller, believing in his heart that what he had just said was a lie. So, you see, he couldn't very well engage me for this journey, and he had to trust to you further. Oh, that's it, is it? Have you been friends with him for some time? For several weeks now. I'm rather surprised that he should not have spoken of this journey to anybody. Would you be in a position to know if he did speak of it? Certainly. I see him very often in the presence of his best friends in that neighborhood. And you hadn't a suspicion that there was a secret in this man's life? There must be, judging from what he demands of me. No, I hadn't the faintest suspicion of it until today, answered Mueller truthfully. Then he added, there are secrets, political secrets, in the lives of most Russians who live outside their own country. I suppose this is another one of the same kind. Probably. Anyway, he pays very well. He has promised me an unusually large commission for finding the man he wants, and the salary the latter will earn will be equally munificent. So I thought of you, Mueller. That was kind of you. But you know that I haven't worked merely for money for some time now. Pardon me. That wasn't what I meant. I had thought of you, for it struck me that the case promised to be interesting. Interesting politically, probably. But I'm not interested in politics. No, I'm afraid you can't depend upon me here. I don't want to enter Maximoff's service and thus lose him as a friend. Oh, confound it, complained Grang, and I thought it was my special good fortune that brought you to me today, because, to be honest with you, if you don't want to do it, I'll have to lose the good job. Oh, no, you won't. You can take this case. My dear Mueller, what do you mean? Now don't get excited. You'll get your commission and save the reputation of your house. I have a young friend, his name is George Munzer, who I think is just the man. I will be responsible for him, and you can recommend him to Maximoff without fear. George Munzer? The name is quite new to me, said Grang. Not to me, thought Mueller, for I had an uncle by that name. Then he said aloud, There was a time, you know, when the name of Napoleon Bonaparte was new to most people. If I say that I'll be responsible for this young man, you needn't fear recommending him to anybody. Oh, certainly, certainly, said Grang hastily. When can you send him to me? In the course of the next two or three days. I think he is in Vienna now and at liberty. Not for two or three days? Oh, dear. What's the matter now? Are you in such a hurry? I'm not, but the Russian seems to be. By what he says, he'd like to start the man off tomorrow. Oh, I don't believe a day or two will make such a difference. Mueller rose slowly from his chair and continued. Well, for your sake, I'll see if I can't find Munzer today. If he is free, you will have word by tomorrow morning. Oh, thank you ever so much. That's really nice of you. Greng shook Mueller's hand warmly, but not until the latter had taken up his hat did it occur to the manager of the establishment to inquire the reason for his guests coming to him. Why, you see, replied Mueller with a show of candor, I was greatly interested in knowing what you and Maximoff had to do with one another. That's the only reason I came. Then Mueller left the office after another hearty handshake with the man from whom he had easily learned something which might be of value to him. He was very glad now to realize that Grang had not recognized the change in his figure or had not noticed that Maximoff had addressed him by a strange name. For otherwise, the really very clever manager of the private detective agency, who knew his business, although he was in some respects a little too credulous, might have noticed that Mueller was playing a part out in Inzersdorf. Quite satisfied with the result of his visit to the agency, the veteran detective stepped into a printer shop, ordered some visiting cards, and sat down to wait for them. 
the cards were printed with the name George Munzer. Mueller stayed in his own house only long enough to return to the outer contour and the apparel of Mr. Hartman. His servant Conrad mounted the box of the carriage beside the coachman and drove out with him. The stars were already showing clear in the sky when they reached the secluded spot on the black moor where Mueller usually let his carriage wait while he visited the Erlock house. He carried the keys with him in his pocket so as to be ready to go there whenever necessity required. Once in Erlock's study, he lit a candle and searched carefully in every corner of the cabinet where Erlock kept his curiosities. The miniature of Napoleon was not there, nor was it anywhere else in the room. When Mueller was quite sure of this fact, he pressed his hands to his forehead a moment and sighed deeply. Then he went out, leaving the greenhouse to its undisturbed quiet again. Conrad had been doing sentry duty at the garden gate and reported that no one had passed anywhere within the range of his vision. Mueller sent him back to the carriage with orders for the coachman to drive further up the street towards the brick factory. He himself walked towards the plone house and let himself in unseen at the garden gate. Carl was waiting for him anxiously in the pavilion. "'Shall I get supper ready for you?' he asked. "'It's nearly ten o'clock. I've had mine already.' "'No, my dear Tunner. I'll fix what I need for myself later. I want you now to listen carefully to what I have to say to you.' yes sir how many times do you think that dr maximoff has seen you think it over carefully carl pondered a minute not more than three times at most he said decidedly did he ever speak to you no and i don't believe he really ever saw me the doctor is a little bit haughty i don't think a servant really exists for him possibly i never noticed it myself i felt it sir all the better then for then he has never noticed you particularly that's a very becoming beard you're wearing. Thus far I've had no objection to it, but now I'm afraid it's in the way. I'll have it shaved off, sir, replied Carl willingly. Mueller nodded. Yes, have it taken off before eleven o'clock tomorrow morning. It'll be gone by that time, sir. Here are three hundred crowns. Now let me see. You've been wearing a gray suit here, haven't you? Now you go and buy yourself a dark blue or a black suit and a heavy winter coat. Also, get anything else you may think you would need for a journey to Russia. It must all be done before eleven o'clock tomorrow. You can depend upon me, sir. Then from eleven o'clock you must stay at home. Here? No, in my house in the city. We'll dine there tomorrow noon, and then I'll explain everything to you. Here are your visiting cards. You will need to use two of them tomorrow, so don't lose them, and don't forget what your name is. Carl threw a glance at the little pasteboards. Then my name is George Munzer? Yes, you are George Munzer, a private detective by profession. I'll tell you all the rest tomorrow. And now get ready to go back to town. You will find my carriage waiting for you by the railroad bridge. Good night, George Munzer. Good night, Mr. Hartman. Ten minutes later, Mueller heard a wagon driving slowly past the garden wall, the noise of the wheels dying away in the distance. He stood at the window for some time. He knew there was no danger in doing so, for the room behind him was in darkness. While his eyes wandered up to the gleaming star points in the blackness of the space above, his mind went over in review all he had experienced that eventful afternoon and evening. No, he murmured half aloud, there is no picture of Napoleon in Erlock's cabinet. Then after a little while, he added with a deep sigh, and this Maximoff is such a really delightful and sympathetic personality. End of chapter 11, part 2